she's not a Pacino. And you listen to the Sassels. What the fuck kind of a name is this, the Sassels? With that uh, Jamie and Pete. Fucking Pete. Hey, who told you you could work with men? Want to know what the number one rule is? You never open your mouth unless you know the shot. The fucking fairy. Welcome to Sassholes the Podcast, the podcast for me, Jamie Carney, and Pete Jansen. Say, Pete, say hi. Hi. How you doing? How you doing? Happy New Year's. Happy New Year. Yeah, we talk about our 60 years of combined experience in the software as a service area, hence the word SAS. We are the Sassholes. Um, today's episode, we've got a guest, Alex Nagivan, uh, who's on the call. Alex, want to say hi? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, and we're going to talk about data. And Alex and I have a lot of experience in this and how to use data to answer complicated questions and just issues with data in general. But before we get into that segment, Alex, I apologize. You're going to have to actually listen to the joke of the day before you can fast forward on a podcast. I would recommend you have your finger on the uh, fast forward button. But before you do that, like us on Apple podcast and subscribe to us today. Uh, before you listen, mash to that like button. Before you listen to this joke, go ahead. Give us six stars. All right, Alex. What was Doctor Frankenstein's New Year's resolution? What? To make new friends. Again, don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Give us some of those loving stars. I, I you don't. You don't, you don't like the topics? Give us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Continue, James. All right, so before we go any farther, we got to do shout-outs. Alex, you're more than happy to jump in. Just raise your hand uh, and any shout-outs you want to give. But, Pete, start us off with a shout-out. Well, it's a new new year, so there's a ton of them, so uh, brace yourselves. Thomas Dohaney graduated early from Villanueva, or is that Villanova? We'll edit that out in post. Uh, yeah. three, and a, three and a half years. Started a new gig as an equity research associate at Stifle Financial Corporation. No relation to uh, Archie Bunker. So he graduated from Villanova, not Charlie Villanueva's university, which would, I don't think Charlie Villanueva went to college. Or if he did, he made Is there a country called Villanueva? No, there isn't. No, it's Villanova, I know. Yeah, there is not a country called Villanueva. That's, uh, that shows the Southern Illinois uh, geography education you got. (laughs) Who do you got as a shout-out? Right. Chris Shelley uh, worked with him at CareerBuilder. He just left after 12 years to be SVP of Fran Connect. So, Chris, shout-out to you. Um, I love people with two, two names. Yeah, Chris Shelley. Uh, Shelley, Chris? Yeah, could go either way. I, I would screw that up. All right. Matthew he, he Witt. He her because of that. Don't get me on the pronouns. Matthew Witt celebrating one year as an investment performance analyst at DeMeo Schneider and Associates LLC. No relation to one day at a time. What do you got? Lori McGurney, she just became CMO over at Upshow. Um, she was over at the Hunt Club. Uh, so I'm giving her a shout out. Wait, how'd she you say her last name? McInerney. Did I say Lori. Lori. What was her old name? We, I was trying to remember that too. It was a long time ago. What was her? Lori, I'm sure you're listening. Can you let us know? Yeah. All right. 
How about Kevin Gaithier? Left Zip Recruiter as the uh, senior vice president hooked up with Upkeep, chief sales officer. It's the number one software for maintenance and re- reliability teams. Next. All right, next I got up is Stephen Myros. Uh, one year anniversary at LinkedIn, but I worked with him. I know, Alex, you worked with him too, right? Wasn't he part of your whole fantasy football club or maybe not? I don't know. But he's a good guy. I don't think I don't think I worked with him. I mean, I worked with him um, on not directly in, in sales. No. Okay. Yeah. So shout out to Stephen. Hope everything's going well. I know you have a couple kids, I believe. This too. So hope all is well. That you know of. Yes. Elliot a new new gig, equipment finance originator at Fifth Third Bank. He was over uh, at uh, Chase. Long-time listener, first-time shouter. Last last one I got is Paul Gunderson just uh, got a new job over at PandaLogic as their sales director for staffing and RPO. So shout-out to Paul. He worked at Caribble there a long time ago. I know he's had a couple stints at uh, a handful of different companies, but it seems like he just landed at PandaLogic, so great job. All right, we're going back to the Wayback Machine on this one. Frank Ruffalo. President C. Poeo Solutions. Frank, I know you're listening out there. Can you help me correct that? He was a CEO at uh, Paychex or something like that for a long time. Uh, I'm sure he uh, cha-chinged. Good for you. Also, Jason Hoback. He was back from the headhunter.net day. CEO at Throttle. Hoback, what is Throttle? Mark Rafak. 11 years with Gibsons. Oh, man, he's old school. Back from the Cubby Bear days. How many more shout-outs do you got, Pete? Like 40? I got, I got. I told you at the beginning of the preface. Uh, one last one. Ben Goldberg, happy birthday. Oh, just Ben turned, Goldberg's happy birthday. Just turned 32, December 26th. Happy New Year to everybody, and happy birthday to Ben. All right, that's it. It's a new year. You get a lot of shout-outs at the new year. New year a lot new of shout-outs. Also, for a new year, um, we got a sponsor, not a new sponsor, but a new deal. Uh, it's the same deal, 50% off at neuronoodle.com. Get a doodle of your noodle today. If you reference Sassels when you book your first appointment, you get 50% off. It does accept Blue Cross Blue Shield as an insurance provider. Uh, if you're dealing with any mental health issues from anxiety, depression, ADHD, even if your kid is about to Maybe start playing sports again. Get concussion protocol. Go get a, a, a doodle of your noodle before you start sports in case you get that concussion. Reach out to NeuroNoodle at NeuroNoodle.com and tell them the Sassel sent you. And they do not accept shroot bucks. Another sponsor there, Carney. New, new podcast out there. Chicago Back in the Day. It's backinthedayblog. Listen to some old school stories from OG 1.0 Chicago guys. Just like listening to three guys sitting around the alley shooting it, giving a listen. All right, it's what's like next? Sports Barney? writers, except you guys talk about Chicago, right? Back no, Chicago it's like Chicago bar stool, but with like not yeah, transplants. No, who those fools over at uh, bar bar stool? Oh, you guys are trying to be bar stool. No, they're trying to be us. <laughs> we're we're the OGs. All right, Back news in, of the day. Oh, God. Uh, all right. I didn't vote for him, but he is my president. You got any thoughts on uh, Biden coming in? Yes. 
no. Capital stormed and all that. Yeah, no thoughts on that. Uh, did you have a, any issues getting back from D.C., Carney? Yeah, I was not in D.C. So even though <laughs> oh, I don't what? have thoughts on I don't have thoughts on the Biden, I was not storming the Capitol and being an embarrassment to our country. Um, bit, bit I had a friend who made a joke about uh, PTOs now stands for Patriot Time Off. <laughs> oh, man, who's right? Who's right? That's why people are turning to podcasts. They want the truth. We are the truth. Uh, you know, the, the rest of these news items uh, are from a couple weeks ago. Uh, the big news item was the storming of the Capitol, but there's so much negativity out there. I was trying to look for some good stuff, you know, to get everybody pointed in the right direction for this year. Yeah. Just going to quickly run down. We had this terrible plague hit us, and we already got a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a positive thing. It's unfortunate some people won't take it, but you know, what, what, whatever. I, I'm on the list for the. For, you know, for the my first my shots. opinion is, if you make the taking of the vaccine political and decide to post your taking the political uh, your vaccine, you're politicizing it. So. You know, it's it's a medical treatment that you're deciding to take on your own and keep it personal. Otherwise, I want to know more better news for me is show me your other medical conditions. I want to know which of my friends surprisingly might have some sort of, uh, you know, illness that I don't know of, herpes, because um, it would be great news. Great guy. A lot of dead out in post. Uh, let's see. But uh, in order to get that vaccine, uh, thousands of people had to volunteer to take the experimental vaccines. Those are the. Talk about here, let me shoot. I'm going to shoot this into your arm. Okay. Um, then you had the uh, frontline workers, the nurses, doctors, orderlies, all that, that they're still fighting on the front lines. I thought that was positive. We sort of figured out social distancing. Uh, we figured out, hey, look, we're on Zoom, right? You know, we're connecting with people. It could be said that we're more efficient. Um, the the uh, movie theater chains have struggled, uh, but the drive-in theaters have picked up. I think that was positive, Carney. Uh, let's see. That's it. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave that go because uh, Alex says we should speed up the news. So we yeah. Quick right. one for you to hold on, hold on. For you guys, just part of the news. Did uh, did Georgia flip both of those Senate seats to Democrats? Yep. So it's they did. So what do you finance, guys? There also was a, a bad job report today, too, I believe. Horrible job report today. How yeah. horrible? Uh, the unemployment uh, unemployment claims or the jobs report? Jobs claims. Okay. Yeah, I didn't see the exact stats on it. I can pull it up real quick. Uh, a gain of 50,000 jobs down from 245,000 in November. Yeah. And this is right now. Positive. It's positive, but January is supposed to be the positive. Yeah. Well, they're also so, saying it's 50-50 whether or not it's up 50,000 or down 50,000. So probably somewhere in between that range. So you finance guys, did, I'm sure you did your budgets. Like what probability did you give uh, everything flipping to the Democrats? 
I want to get into uh, the politics, but I mean, it does affect numbers, right? Yeah, I mean, the polls were very close. I think they were within the margin of error. Um, I think the big surprise with that was kind of the turnout, right? I think in Georgia, it was the largest turnout, even larger than the uh, presidential election. So typically large turnouts, you know, tend to favor the Democrats. And um, I think it was anyone's kind of, you know, still a very close race, uh, regardless. Yeah. But Carney, when you do your budgets, did you like have, let's say hypothetically, you're in a fiduciary. It's not as rosy of a picture as you would think, because corporate tax rates are going to go up. Um, there's going to be civil unrest and, and individual tax rates are going to go up. So there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be, um, we're in a retracting economic state as it is because of the pandemic. Um, you know, there, there is a chance of a, uh, a bigger dip in 2021. And I think it's become more of a chance, more of a probability than it was before that we might go back into a recession because of the economic landscape changing where we're going to tax more people. Got it. All right. Well, I'm just saying, you know, we're going to be talking about data here. These are data points that are coming in. They are. So right now the probability is higher than it was if, uh, the Senate stated where it was um, that we could go into a recession. But once again, it's a probability measure. So maybe before it was 40%, now it's probably 45%. Or 30%, it could be 35%. You know, whatever your numbers are, the probability of it of us retracting is higher than it was before that vote. Well, the market likes gridlock. We don't have that anymore. So, um you know, plan. market is don't different any, than the economy, right? I mean, no, is well aware. Don't, don't, don't make any uh, big ticket purchases. Is that right, Carney? Hold on to your cash. Hold on to your cash. No, get right. rid of your cash. Cat, the, the currency is going to go down. Negative. I, okay. I buy, yeah, I, buy Bitcoin. 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 Yeah. All, all right. All the gold so, and uh, silver. All right. Go ahead. All right. So on to our point. So we got Alex Nagyvon joining us today. And the topic of today's podcast is how do you use data to answer complicated questions? That is a loaded question. Before we get into that, Alex, why don't you give a little background of who you are and why we got you on the call or the podcast? Sure. So uh, Alex Nagivan, I'm a director of sales analytics at a Fortune 500 company. I've been there for the past uh, two years. So for my team, what we do is we will look at, um, we have access to different backend data systems across the organization, whether that be financial data, uh, sales data, CRM type data, or it could be sales tools usage. We typically will then write uh, custom SQL code to kind of bring all those different disparate data systems together into one kind of consolidated data source. And then use a tool like Tableau to kind of visualize that data, provide analytics back to the business. So that the end stakeholder, whether that be a sales leader, finance, comp, et cetera, can um, you know, have their data at their fingertips and be able to make you know, good decisions when they need to. Prior to that, I actually started my career as an SDR rep working at a boutique investment bank. So I probably spent about a year making 200 to 300 cold calls a day. I then transitioned over to a uh, an internet recruitment advertising company and actually worked for both of you two gentlemen, right? So I started in pizza VBU world for about a year. Um, I was actually put on plan about two months in and then promoted uh, two months later. So put on plan and promote within four months. And then uh, 
about the 10 month mark, I moved over into Jamie, your organization, which at the time was our niche site as a business analyst. From there, I went to uh, you know product analytics, uh, led a team in that, and then actually ended up doing uh, pricing, packaging, and go-to-market strategy. So a little bit of background on me. Yeah. So question, when you got put on plan, what were you put on plan for? Yeah. Like Pete. You, know, you know, Pete actually hasn't like hit on this as much on the podcast. So I remember when I started, there was very sort of strict guidelines and KPIs you had to hit in the sales organization. I want to say month one, it was a dial KPI. I believe it was like 1,250 dials because you spent the first two weeks doing training. So hit the dial KPI, no problem. Uh, second month was appointment set KPI. And so the problem that I had was I just had a lot of accounts to call. So I was calling the same accounts every single day, running through the whole rollbacks over and over, got put on plan because I did not hit that KPI, which was fine. And so at the time, my manager, you know, Matt Russell, he was very apologetic about it. I was like, Matt, I, I don't really care. I don't, I'm not really upset. I, there's a KPI. I didn't hit it. So I understand. I just need more accounts. Got about, you know, 200, 300 accounts, make sure it's in my name the next day. I ended up breaking the invoicing record in month three. I think it was like over $40,000 of sales for skilled labor. And then in month four, I was in the, uh, the revenue group. And then you got so I was just put on plan because there was a, yeah, there's a very, you know, it was very, very clean, clear cut KPIs you had to hit. Didn't hit a KPI. I was put on plan. Was not upset about it. Uh, Pete ran a very tight ship. I appreciate it, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, oh, Pete, that's right. a good shout out for who you. Is your, who was your boss back then, Alex? Let's give them some credit. Yeah, that's why I was hired and I worked for, uh, no, that, no, no hard feelings at all. Matt Russell for the first four months uh, in John Fagan's group. And then I went over to Chris Kang's team in the uh, technology revenue group. Fagan, all right. Weren't you well, under uh, Justin Jackson or no? So uh, Fagan would have been like Justin's counterpart, but Fagan was her skilled neighbor. Justin ultimately oversaw all the teams of technology. Tech. Okay. okay. Now I got a frame of reference. All right. Yeah. Justin was the one who put me in contact with Alex when I hired him over. So, all right. So let's get into our, our spiel then. So Alex, you and I have spent a lot of time dealing with complicated questions, but how do you use data to answer complicated, complicated questions. I know that's a loaded question, so take this wherever you want. Um, but what is your take on that? Um, that is a loaded question. So um, yeah, I think the first thing I would do is even given kind of a question like that, if I try and figure out what is actually the question the business is trying to answer, right? So if we're saying like use data to answer a question, that can mean a lot of different things. I think it's really clear and important when you're talking to your, your end stakeholders to figure out what exactly is the, the question you're trying to answer, or even more importantly, what is the business problem you're trying to solve, right? Sometimes they may come to you and say, I'm looking for this, or I want to answer this question, when in reality they're saying, I have this problem and I'm trying to figure out a solution and this is my hypothesis. So sometimes going in, doing a little more discovery, understanding sort of what is the actual business problem or what are they trying to solve will help you figure out how do I use that data to kind of give you not only the answer, right, but a recommendation on what the answer, what the possible solution is, as well as put into a place where it's on an ongoing basis. They don't have to come back and ask it again. They can see whenever they need. Yeah, I think that's important what you just said there. So understand what your audience is or who your audience is, and then really dive into, is this something they're using to just answer part of the question, or uh, is there a bigger problem that they're trying to answer? And therefore, maybe you might have better understanding. So then 
that being said, um, it's usually complicated, right? So there's many facets. So let's say you go through that process. You try to understand the audience, try to understand the business problem. What else would you say you want to do when it comes to, let's say it's a many multiple faceted question with multiple facets of data. Um, what, how would you go about attacking that? Yeah, so I think first and foremost is the discovery piece, understanding kind of what the actual uh, business question is. I think you didn't have to build out the data to kind of um, see what's going on. And then I think, you know, the, the something that people maybe lack or the, the trouble part is they're not always just asking for the actual answer. They want to understand what the trend of story is, right? What is the data actually saying is happening? So a lot of it kind of can come down to how you present that data back to them, right? What are you seeing in the, in the data? What are the data suggesting is actually happening? What are the recommendations the data suggesting you should make? And honestly, you know, data is only one piece of the story. That's the quantitative kind of analysis. You have to loop in those on stakeholders to understand the qualitative piece. What is yeah. the context behind this? I don't know why this went up or this went down. Can you provide that to me? And I think a lot of times when you're talking to that audience, sometimes if the audience is a little bit less data savvy, or maybe the organization has not been very data driven, it's very important to make sure you're presenting the data you know, you don't want to show them in a negative light, right? So you kind of want to get them on their side early. You want to talk to them about sort of like, hey, I don't know all the answers. It's a purely a quantitative analysis. Um, I'm going to need your help to kind of understand why some of these things happen. And that way seems more like a partnership and they're more open to having that conversation as opposed to, hey, I pulled the data. You guys are doing really poorly. Yeah. Partner. So I, got partner. A, I got a question to you guys. Because um, mm -hmm. I'm having a little recall here when we work together. Didn't we get together uh, trying to uh, bundle some solutions together? Like the three of us, we sat down and we're trying to make the uh, trying to make an offering to the, to the market that's a little bit uh, simplified. Uh, because if a sales rep has to spend less time explaining it because the price is right or there aren't as many facets to it, uh, we were trying to figure out what to what to put in a bundle at a at a certain price. Is that right, guys? Yeah, yeah. We, the the problem sometimes with that when it comes to pricing and simplifying a solution is when you have historical margins that you want to keep. Um, those historical margins have to get thrown out the door, which is virtually impossible. Um, when you're bundling in a more complex solution like we were trying to attack, Pete, um, the question would be how would you price it if this was what you went to market with in the first place. And when you do it that way, it might be a completely different offer with a different, completely different cost uh, and margin gain. And when you bubble that up to the executives and the people that own you and are, are evaluating the business, they might not like that margin gain. So uh, sometimes that impedes that conversation. Well, that's, that's one component, right? That's the pricing component. But what about sort of depending on your organization, if you're a hunter organization or a farmer organization, you could be dramatically changing kind of the offer to the current client base, right? So something that I struggle with in the past that you want to kind of package things together is, does the compensation plan also tie out to what the strategy is around that package? And if it doesn't, then why would sales drop sell it, right? So if I have 10 accounts and maybe you're saying like, that's where I get to make my, my quota for the year, if I were to come in and say, hey, the data suggests that you should actually downsell this client, give them more product because they're a flight risk. 
if I'm a sales rep and I do that and my compensation's not aligned to do that, well, then I'm going to lose my job anywhere. I'm going to leave in a year. So I'll take my chances. I'll roll the dice. I'll try and upsell them. Maybe I won't get it, but it'll be the same result, right? So I think when you're talking about packaging, there's definitely a pricing component, like Jamie mentioned. There's also a compensation component. And does the compensation actually align to what you're trying to accomplish as an organization? Those two things don't, it'll never be successful. Never. Well, well, somebody's buying and somebody's selling. So the market has to be provoked to, to try the offer, right? So you have to get the price right. And then the price has to be right to the rep to say, okay, this makes sense for me to sell. So I remember the whiteboards were in here. All right, here's, I'm trying to simplify it for, for the uh, new managers out there. You get a whiteboard and you look at, hey, man, what am I selling a lot of? Okay, this, this is what we're selling a lot of. What are we not selling a lot of? If we put it together and raise the price a little bit, can we make more if we did it separately, right? And then you guys would give us the data to look at. Yeah, at the end of the day, that's a, Simplify Your Solution is always, and Simplify Your Story is always a, uh, uh, the goal. And then the other goal is, and that is not only do I make, how do I make the sales reps more money, but how do I, you know, the, I hate this word, enterprise value. There's got to be a component where you're making, uh, the sales rep is making more money while the company is performing better because of that behavior. Sometimes uh, sales reps and, and things of that nature want to simplify the solution, make it easier for them to sell so that they can make more money and rightfully so. But if that doesn't make the company more money, then you become out of whack with the company and that, that's not where we want to go. So at the end of the day, we want to increase the whole pie when you're doing those types of things and make sure that the company and the sales reps are aligned so that they do a certain type of behavior, both will win. And for you data guys, I mean, is it a, is it a product-driven company or a sales-driven company? When we worked together, I think it was a sales-driven company and we're trying to get into the software business. So you had the sales guys uh, really uh, – they're looking for confirmation bias with the data that you had. They pick and choose the data that say, yeah, that, that supports, you know, where I want to go, right? Versus the product guys, right? You come up with a product that's that works, easy to use, price right, and then you adjust the compensation or the, the degree of skill of the sales rep. To, you can make it either simpler to sell, you don't need as good as a sales rep, or make it really complicated and pay a lot to a salesperson, right? Yeah, I mean, that's... I would say where we used to work, it was confirmation data. Um, but that was, it was sort of like, let me take a couple assets. It, it's sort of like what I was talking about before, a complicated question. There could be multiple facets to the question, meaning maybe there's 10 data points that you need to discover. If you only pick and choose five because, and you stop there because it tells the story you want, that's called confirmation bias or, uh, uh, you know, and sort of like, hey, that tells my story. The reality is you want to break down that complicated question into as many data points that you feel necessary to need and try to answer, let's say, eight, at least eight of those with data so that you know that two of these points are assumptions that you have a couple, uh, a couple uh, different ways to approach the solution. And then you offer those up and say, let's test out this component. And by test it out, meaning let's go hard at this for a month and then look and say, maybe we need to change our assumption and change it then. 
And, and so you always want to isolate down the data. I, I feel like we've always, and this leads into our other question, why do, they, why do some leaders just not listen to the data? I think it's because it goes against what they believe based on anecdotal information. What, what's your thoughts on that? I know that's a loaded question as well. and could get us into some trouble. But Alex, what's your thoughts on why don't some leaders listen to the data? So just to wrap up that last point that you had mentioned, yeah. I think to Pete's point, right, you can make data sort of say anything you want, or you can create any kind of story you want out of data. And so one of the things you want to do is you don't just want to confirm someone's anecdotal opinion. And I think if you're you know, either too close to sales or you're too close to finance or whoever the end audience is, you can, make, you can give me any basketball player in the NBA and I could pull some stat or skew something to kind of show you that they're a really good player, right? But like, are they actually a good player in the holistic view? Probably, probably not, right? So I think that's the kind of wrap of that last point. Jamie, to your point around why do sometimes leaders, I think, we're talking about sales leaders or leaders in general. I think that regardless, right? Um, I think it goes back to basically, um, depending on who the, the audience is, how um, data central, the how data driven the company's been over a certain time period. And then also sort of um, you know, how data savvy the audience is. I've worked with you know, individuals or leaders who are, they couldn't open an Excel sheet and do a pivot table, right? They're just not data driven. That's okay. They're not very data savvy. You're talking with them sometimes where the organization isn't very uh, data driven. You have to simplify the data down so it's very easy to understand and they can understand what you did, why you did, how you did it. And then also it, it goes back to kind of making sure that you know, sometimes the data may paint them in a negative light, right? And they don't, they don't want to accept it because it's not going to be a positive thing for them. So it's really about sort of going in there and being like, hey, this isn't the full story. Or there should have been an expectation for you guys to know this stuff because the data wasn't available before. But here's what's happening. How do we partner together now to make it better, right? And yeah. kind of like get that buy-in and that partnership as opposed to, hey, here's the data. You're not doing well. What's going on? Change that narrative into, hey, here's the data. Maybe it's you know not the greatest thing, but now it's a benchmark. What do we do for steps A, B, and C now in the future to make sure it gets better? Yeah. So tell the story. That is a big component of what you just said. There. You need to be able to tell the story, not only of how you got to that data, to sort of give credibility, Back to that earn the right. In data, you need to earn the right by saying, hey guys, I took all your questions, I tried to answer them all, and this is how I got to that story. And sometimes, you know, Alex, you know my history, sometimes I might get a little bit too caught up into that, but it's the pa the process no. I think is important to try to get somebody to, under to give you credibility on what you're doing. And then the other part is then tell the story of what they want to hear, or of what they're trying to answer. And then the negative light, but the, I think it's best. Well, provide a solution too. Yeah, provide a solution. So like, don't just tell them the answer, right? Like if, you, if someone came to me and said, have my, my revenues down 10% year over year. And I went, I go pull the data and I confirm, yes, you're correct. Your revenue's down 10%. I provide no value. Great. You just confirmed what I already knew, right? Yeah. Why is it down? What is the recommendation to uh, get it to stop being down, right? To kind of get it back to where it was or improve it in the future. So I think something I talk to my team about a lot of times too is like, Simply providing the data and the answer to the question isn't enough. You want to provide a recommendation or solution to what the problem is. It goes back to that first question is, what's ultimately the question you're trying to answer? If you're just saying, hey, give me revenue year over year, and I see it's down 10%. Okay, were you guys trying to ask a deeper question there? Are you trying to understand why it's down? Where is it down? Is there a certain product that it's having a problem? Is there a certain sales group that's actually having a problem? You're trying to isolate that. Ask those additional questions up front to understand what the actual uh, problem is they're trying to solve. 
yeah. or opportunity they're trying to size, right? It could be all the way around too. And a lot of times the negative light, you know, that hammer on that and what you just said, the negative light that they might've shined on them is because they might've moved forward with a certain solution to the anecdotal data that is counterintuitive or the data suggests they should have done something differently and it puts them in a bind. The, the answer to that then is, wouldn't, if you came up with a negative or a, a, a solution that the data shows that you should not be doing that, as a leader, if I presented you that, wouldn't you want to control the narrative on changing and saying, hey, in retrospect, I looked at this and I, I believe this strategy is not correct and I think we should pivot to this strategy based on this data. If you're able to do that and get out in front of it, you can turn that negative into a positive because the last thing you're going to want is to continue going down this path. And then three months later, somebody else catches wind that uh, they should have been doing something else. And then you put the person who gave you that data in a bind because they're going to ask, wait, you brought this to their attention three to six months uh, ago and they didn't change. And, and the answer is yes. And it's very frustrating to be put in those situations. And Alex, you and I both know we've been in those situations multiple times. Yeah, I think the challenge there is that, sorry, go ahead, Pete. No, Alex, you're the guest, man, go. You know, change is just, uh, it's scary sometimes, right? And if you're working with an organization or a sales leader who's been successful for an X number of years or whatever time period, sometimes I'll hear things like, well, it's been going pretty well, right? They almost aren't calculating the opportunity cost they're missing out by making that change and making it better. So if you're growing 5% every year and your goal is to grow 3%, well, I'm doing really well, but should you be growing 20%, right? That's kind of the question you have to kind of bring up there or kind of size that opportunity. You know, Pete talks about like people don't buy things unless they're sufficiently disturbed or they clearly understand the value. So part of what you have to do as a data professional is do one of those two things. You got to either, or actually both, right? Disturb mm -hmm. them enough to want to make a change and then clearly explain why they should make a change. Pete, did it's you really, it's a sales job. Everyone sells. It's just, it's just, I'm selling internally as opposed to I'm selling externally to someone trying to buy my product. The data person, you're trying to sell your analysis or your process and why they should change and adopt the, uh, you know, whatever you're saying. Carney, you... Yeah. In a sales-driven organization, okay, we talked about one thing where, because we use these buzzwords, data, this, data, that, okay, what what are the, in a salesperson's world, okay, how much does this thing cost that I have to sell? How much am I getting paid? And to me, the third thing is the quota setting. You take your best guess at setting the quota, and depending on your organization, you missed the target, you didn't get the quota right, you get less than whatever the number is. My number is you want two out of three winning. Okay. Some companies are at one out of three winning, whatever that number is, you missed the boat on your target. Then they use you data guys to support, Hey, you know what? I should get a haircut or I should get a credit or I should get. And if you lose control of those reins, that could just bog you guys down forever. Is that true or not true? That is true. I mean, depending on your organization, two to three win, usually is uh, uh, the, the situation, unless you're paying it. If, you're, if your comp plan is set in a way to pay people a lot of money, one to three to win is not a bad idea because um, you might have two, two thirds lose, but um, they're gonna stick around because they can make a million next year. You know, they know how the comp plan works, that it's, 
it's really feast or famine type of things. But um, at the end of the day, you need to own that. You need to understand the data. You need to understand all the assumptions behind it so that when there are challenges and every single year at the beginning of the year and throughout the year, there are challenges to your knowledge of that data. If you don't own it and you don't uh, um, present it and, and be open to talking about it, um, what will happen behind the scenes is uh, there will be grumblings behind the scenes to get you to lower the quota. People will think you don't know what you're doing and stuff like that, because it is very difficult when you're trying to earn a living and, and earn a living off of a quota. Um, this becomes a very difficult and very personal thing. So, you guys are fortune tellers, literally. Yeah. So it's very, it's, and, and, and I understand the frustrations with every rep that misses quota that they think the quota is unfair. And so you need to understand why was it unfair and need to understand the data behind it. Um, and it's really not unfair. In most you know, I think to your point about being like bogged down though, um, this is something I learned from Jamie, right? We used to kind of like throw up our hands as like no ad hoc, right? We joke around, but you know, the truth is if you start getting into an ad hoc, uh, organ if, you, if your organization becomes an ad hoc organization where all you're doing is random data dumps or data requests to prove that so-and-so's quota should be lowered or should be increased, whatever it is, you're not actually providing that much value to the organization, right? It's just going to take up a lot of time. Um, build a good process out that takes care of the 90% of the cases and just stick to it, right? You have to kind of communicate that to, in this instance, the sales leaders around like, hey, listen, it's always going to be these outlier cases where so everyone's going to think that their quota is unfair or that they didn't have the opportunity to actually hit their quota, right? You just got to set something up that captures it, you know, for the 95%. And there are those like, wild outlier cases, handle them one by one, but don't get uh, drowned in just doing ad hoc analysis because then otherwise, it's all you're ever going to do. You're not going to really do a lot of things and provide great value to the organization. It's just going to be the same request over and over and over again. Yeah, I think my, my rules were always every person on my team, I would say, and I like to check, my, uh, check me if I'm wrong, was the first rule on this team is there is no ad hoc. The second rule on this team is there is no ad hoc. The reality is there's always some ad hoc, but um, you want to minimize it. And the reason why there's always some ad hoc is because sometimes you're investigating something to see if it's worthwhile to invest more. But uh, well, that guys, is... you're talking about you're talking about energy. You take that same energy trying to justify your numbers. You can take that same energy and go find a new client, right? Or yeah. bring some more money in your organization. Yeah, and, for sure. And for those of you that are you know new sales reps and stuff like that. Go find that energy to find a new job. If you feel like you're not getting paid fairly and all of this stuff is not fair, the reality is one rep, two reps, 10 reps isn't going to change the company's mind and opinion, at least in that current year. And if it's that disturbing to you, rather than waste the energy complaining, waste the energy trying to find a new gig. That would be my... Yeah, in my, in my current organization, there's a, a sales dispute process where, you know, I sold something to this account, but Pete actually owned the account. Who should get the, the credit for that, right? And these pop up all the time. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands, right? It's a large organization. But I was talking to one of the high-level sales leaders in the group, and he basically said that when it actually gets to his level, him and the other leader that are involved, they just split it 50-50. They don't spend any time doing it. They just split it. But even to get to that level, you're probably talking about five, six different levels of arguing time being spent yeah. when basically the, the boss at the top is just like, 
we're not even going to debate this anymore. It's 50-50. I don't care. And that's just what they go with. So I think there's a lot of waste in time, right? So the sales leader, figure out where the majority of your roll call comes from. It's a peach point, right? Put the energy into an area that actually just like, go get another client or go sell another deal. You lost a big deal because uh, implementation issue. Don't hold, handhold the uh, implementation people's hands. It's probably one-off cases. Just go sell another deal. And depending on your sales cycle, the size of the deal, uh, the time, right? Like it's a little bit harder to say if you sell four deals a year. If you're in a, a value business, you sell a lot of deals. Like I was in the DBU 10 years ago. I didn't waste time on that. I just picked up the phone again and called someone else. Yeah. Yeah, it does, it does, it does change depending on sales cycle and how many deals you sell. Um, yeah, all right, if I so, sell two deals, two deals a year, I'm probably, uh, I'm going to fight over that one deal. All right. So you've done all this stuff. You've, you've, you've been able to, let's, let's recap what you, what you said here. You have um, understood the audience uh, of the question. You understand the un- overlying business problem. You've partnered with them. Um, maybe you've taken into account a compensation component to make sure it's aligned so that you're not out of line with them. Um, you understand the story. You understand the data. Uh, you understand that uh, this may or may not put that leader uh, in a negative light. What should you do when you do all of this stuff and you're in this world and that leader just doesn't care what you said and still goes forward with their thought process? What should you do, Alex? Any yeah. advice there? Uh, so first piece of advice is that will happen, 100%. You can do everything correctly, that's still going to happen. Yeah, I think you just want to continue to provide the best value, right? It's basically like, uh, as I talked about earlier, if it's a sales pitch, that was my pitch, and I didn't win the deal, right? But if you know that you followed the correct process, and you just go and you do it again for the next one. And, you know, if you continue to do this with an organization and they're not necessarily receptive or nothing's changing and you're fed up with it, to your point, Jamie, well, then go on and find another job, right? Go on, find an organization that does value what you're doing or someone who does value uh, that kind of, you know, work and go do that. But I think ultimately you want to do that or you can, you know, try and go to another sales leader or you go to the person who reports to them, right? Or maybe you go to the finance end of the house where it's like, hey, this is costing us money. But from sales, they're not concerned about that. So you can shift your audience a little bit, but I think ultimately you want to do all the right things and you're not going to win every single game. You're not going to hit every shot you take, right? So that's just a, rea- a reality of the situation. Yeah. So where do the data guys report to nowadays? It all depends, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it 10 years ago, data, data could have been an IT position, you know, data warehouse and there is yeah, a data where there, there is an IT is, data yeah. warehouse that's always there. Those are the guys that are, those are really, you know, we, we tried at one point, Alex is aware, we tried to make data intelligence and business intelligence almost two separate things. Data intelligence to me are the data architects, the guys that can stand up data models so that you can harness that in an efficient and scalable manner. That is an IT uh, uh, first type of, uh, environment, those are data architects and they usually reside in the IT department. Then there's business intelligence and that can be centralized or decentralized. You'll usually have decentralized, you'll find a bunch in sales uh, supporting the sales org. You'll find a ton in finance supporting the finance org. Um, and then you might, you'll find a ton inside product sub, uh, supplying the product org. If it's centralized, then it's just a shared service that those three components and more, even marketing, 
would harness um, and everything would get prioritized based on need. Wait, hold hold on, Carney. You so there's data guys that are helping out the sales team. There's the data guys that are supporting the finance team. Are those two at odds? Who's got the better data to support? I mean, finance wants to lower costs. Sales wants to raise costs, right? Yeah, that goes back to uh, you can make data say whatever you want, right? So if my if my boss is uh, the controller of the organization and their their goal is to cut costs, right? I'm going to pull data to or create an analysis that's going to showcase that. My um, by tied record the sales organization, and I'm focused more on growing revenue or opportunity. I'm going to pull my data to kind of focus on that. I mean, maybe not later in cost. Um, so I think ideally, it, just, it depends on the setup. But that those um, those cases do come about where finance has one thing, sales has one thing, and it's kind of been a battle to see uh, who wins. I guess. Yeah, sales typically wins because roll call because revenue is king. Revenue is king. And and the funny thing is, even if you do a centralized uh, data group, there are going to be uh, the sales leaders always going to have their own secret uh, data people working for them to try to try to help them uh, sell their story internally. So even if you had, they'll turn executive administrators, or they'll sit there and look at some sales rep that is good with Excel and be like, "Wow, you know how to do some ver- functions on Excel." You're now my data guy. A pivot and, table and a view lookup. Yep. Yeah. They're going to be like, hey, uh, you know, Joe Schmo over here showed me this anecdotal data. And uh, you should learn from him because he's showing me that we should be selling this for 50% less than what you uh, priced it out at. Uh, it's beyond frustrating, but it's going to happen no matter what. So if you're in speaking those roles, guys, <laughs> be ready. Speaking of, fr- like Carney, speaking of frustrating, for you data guys, um, Let's say you're getting ready for the new year or a quarter, or you got a merger coming through or an acquisition. Uh, how about those late night requests from the sales guys? I need this information in 30 minutes. That's where you say oh, the there is no ad hoc. Yeah, they, yeah, there is no ad hoc. There is no ad hoc, especially at 11 o'clock at night. Um, I had some this weekend. I had some right before the Bears kick off against Green Bay. Um, <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, that night, I ended up answering those questions, but um, I didn't do it. Is it mostly from the sales guys, though? No, it it all depends. You know, like mergers and acquisitions never sleep, right? So holidays, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's PE firms. The PE firms, you know, the the lifespan of, uh, you know, those guys all retire at 40 because they're working uh, 100 hours a week. you know, in fact, last night I got an email at eight, at one forty-five a.m. from a guy on the East Coast, uh, giving me his reflection on what I presented to him that day. So, those guys work an absolute ton. They also make a ton of money and retire early, so they have no life until forty. But um, that's sort of how it is. Never going to stop, Pete. Is that your is that your answer you wanted for, or is that what you were expecting? I think you're on mute, mute, Pete. Things have changed over the last ten years, and uh, you guys are the data guys. Alex, you started. You worked at the at the bottom, worked your way up, and you've seen all the changes. Um, I I haven't been part of a big organization the last you know a couple of years. I can only imagine the aggregators that are available out there. 
the artificial intelligence that can tell you what data to look at. Does that threaten what you guys do? Do you feel nervous about that at all? I don't. Um, I think, you know, machine learning and AI are very kind of like popular buzz terms, right? And if you talk to a Maybe someone is not super data savvy or like he doesn't understand like the basics of kind of data architecture. It'd be like, oh, great. I can get this uh, machine learning tool. It'll tell me everything my CRM was perfect. The reality is in a lot of places, the data that's actually in a CRM isn't always that, that great. So if your data integrity is not very good, then the machine learning or the AI is just, it, it doesn't have any value actually. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I look at sort of machine learning or AI and those tools as being actually like, a great extension for something that I would do or individuals in this world, because ultimately you're going to need someone to kind of know how do I format the data into the right way? How do I push it into the machine to kind of have it push back out what it should be looking at? And then also look back at that storytelling piece. How do I communicate what the machine is actually saying is beneficial? Um, because some of these high level tools, like for example, I don't know if you guys heard of Gong. Gong is a great sales tool, but the actual data that got the way the data uh, that Gong provides their data back to it, it's not the most, um, easily interpreted, right? And for someone like me to be able to go in there, look at what the data is saying, kind of create the story around it and kind of communicate it back to a, a less data savvy audience maybe, or um, someone who's not as you know well-versed in it, uh, there's always going to be opportunity there. Data is still relatively new in the grand scheme of things, right? And to yeah. your point, like 10 years ago, dramatic changes. So who knows what will be in the next 10, 15 years from here as well. Right. Yeah. And I, Pete, to add to what you're saying, a lot of times, People want to grab as much data as possible. Um, and I call that analysis paralysis, right? They, we, we, and Alex and I have experienced certain leaders that create these really robust data analysis that, um, by the way, the answer was already given to them in the first data set that they used, but then they spent the next five weeks bringing in more and more data, which all it did was mess up the story because you've got now all these other data points that you're trying to validate your story. And then sometimes it just creates paralysis. They just constantly are trying to add data rather than solve the problem and tell the story. They're talking about how they're trying to solve the problem and how they're trying to uh, tell the story. You know, I had a uh, one, one sales leader that said to me at one point, hey, you know what? You don't understand. I sit in these meetings with executives at these clients. And they tell me all about the 97 problems that they have uh, that are facing them today. And I'm trying to give them an answer for all 97. And I'd always want to slap that person in the back of the head and say, we can only solve two of those problems that we know of. Sell them those two and then move on to the next client uh, because we can't solve 97 problems um, or 99. Well, if you could, it would be priced higher. Yeah, it would be. But you can just get caught up in data. And, and I, I see so many leaders today just getting caught up in data to the point where they just don't make a decision because they get, they just get bogged down in too much data. And, and well, they don't want to take, uh, I think it's, all, about, it's, it's about risk, right guys? You get the more data, yeah, data the less risk, risk sure. is. But if you wait forever, you know, a competitor is going to come in and take you out. Yeah. What were you going to say, Alex? There's an anecdotal piece to, there's an anecdotal piece to a uh, leader hear something or they hear it, you know, from like five people and then they assume that it's not the outlier, that it's the normal, it's the norm, right? And that it's happening all across the board. Most times when I experience that, it's actually, it, it, there are outlier cases. So a big thing that I'm big on is kind of that 80-20 rule, right? 20% of your activities is going to drive 80% of the results or 
maybe 20% of your products drive 80% of your roll call. Just focus on the things that actually matter. Make sure you're really well-versed in those things. All the other ones that are kind of more outliers, to me, just take a lower priority because if you're solid in that 80%, that's great. But sometimes when you're talking to a leader, if their entire quota is based on the 1% that's outside of the 80, right? Or something in that 20% bucket, that's a matter of communicating something like, hey, can look at it, but frankly, it's, it's not as high of a priority as something else because you are the outlier, right? You're the 1% case. Yeah. All right. Anything okay. else we want to talk about data? Because I think we beat this to a drum. And if we do any more, we're going to be um, analysis. Yeah, we're, we're running short on well. time. But uh, Alex, what else can we do to improve the podcast? Uh, you're a frequent listener. What do we got to uh, cut out, do more, well, I, with less I, of? I, I learned today that you guys quintuple down on your shout outs or forgot exactly what you call them. I think there's a total of like nine or 10 in there. Uh, no, I think overall the podcast is really good. Uh, the, you know, the news stuff is interesting to hear both of your guys takes Pete. I think you personally, right. Having worked for you, uh, you know, for a short period of time, 10 months, I thought you ran a really, really tight ship in an inside sales organization where there is a lot of turnover stuff like that. You have to do some of those things, maybe more on how you run a tight ship, how you do some of those things. And then I've worked with Jamie for seven years. So I've heard everything Jamie says uh, probably a hundred times. I listen to here at the hundred and first time, right? Because I do find it beneficial and valuable. So anyone who is listening, right? Um, everything both these guys say is really good. and is very beneficial. Try and take and learn or take pieces of it that apply to what you do and try and apply it and see if it works for yourself. You know, one of the parts I, did, I wanted to jump in was you could take any basketball player and make them look good uh, in any stats. I know you've done that multiple times with me and Patrick Williams. And trying to make him look good and, and sell me on why he was the number seven draft choice of. The I world. believe Patrick Williams is fourth in the NBA in rookie scoring. He was drafted fourth. So data good. right yeah. there. Conversation over, Jamie. Well, so All anybody right. watching NBA? All right. No one's watching the. No one's watching college football either because Notre Dame lost and college football ends and NBA, starts. With nobody with, at all. Uh, Notre Dame. All right. With that being said, Alex, Happy New Year! Thanks for joining us. Alex, thanks, man. You're awesome, All dude. Right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Do guys. Have a good one. Talk to you later. Fucking Pete. Hey, who told you you could work with men? Want to know what the number one rule is? You never open your mouth unless you know the shot.